0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. But uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, whether you're joining us on campus here or, uh, you know, online, getting ready for the Super Bowl, uh, this is great, you know, go Dolphins, I can't wait to see what they do. Oh, uh, that's right, anyway. Um, once... You can take the boy out of Miami, but you can't take the Miami out of the boy. So uh, we are studying through uh, a biography of Jesus called Luke's Gospel. And one way to look at this is like it's like a college course. And so we're almost midpoint in this course. And along with it, there's been a reading assignment. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not at midpoint. So you do have time to catch up if you haven't been following along in the textbook. Some of you haven't even purchased a textbook yet, and I wanna let you know that they have plenty of them still uh, at the campus bookstore. And to pass this course, you really do need to read the textbook, which we all know that many of us bought very expensive books and never cracked them. So maybe you didn't, I did. Um, But it's more than an ancient uh, literature assignment. What we're doing here is uh, we're trying to gain a fresh perspective Of who Jesus of Nazareth was. And so, our perspective here is that we're following him the best we can 2,000 years later, and we're trying to insert ourselves into the story that we're following along with. And not even just like to see it through the eyes of those that are there, but actually to almost picture ourselves being a part of what was happening, Um, going to the places that Jesus went, to the towns and villages walking from town to town and having conversations with him as his disciples did and observing what he did, not just his miracles, but the way he lived his life, the things that came from his conversations and what you observed about him, that, you know, these were important values to him. And of course, listening to his teaching and asking those questions that his disciples did and then Engaging, if not with Jesus, through our prayers and the contemplation, but with others and discussing the things that we're learning. And if if you've done that and you've read this passage, then it's a weird passage, right? It's weird to us, uh, and it was weird to them as well, but it made sense to them in a way that we can't relate because we don't live in the first century and we're not following uh, Judaism, most of us anyway. I mean, if you just think about it, um, this scene is about this. Jesus goes up on a mountain with three friends and he meets two dead prophets all while glowing in the dark. So this is something. I mean, and even the word that we use... To describe this passage probably like bold in your bible says transfiguration and what does that word even mean and when is the last time you use that word in a sentence in fact just like turn to someone you don't know right now in church and use the word transfiguration in a sentence just go ahead and do that right now yeah Okay, now ask them how long they've been at Sunridge. Okay, and now ask them if you can buy them lunch today or invite them to your Super Bowl party. See, the word transfigured might be a part of our regular conversation, right? Like uh, her, her face was transfigured with joy. Or, you know, the last time you saw your cousin... Uh, You were little kids, and now you're at her wedding, and she's 20 years old, and she's transfigured into this radiant woman as she walks down the aisle. But some of you uh, might use transfiguration in your common everyday language if you're a Harry Potter fan, because we all know that transfiguration is a subject that was long taught at the Hogwarts School by Minerva McGonagall. Now, I didn't actually know that. I Googled it. I don't know if that showed, but I just wanted to pretend like I'm down with Harry Potter and I'm up on it. I have no idea what all that means, but I thought I would share it with you. Um, this, this word, transfiguration, um, is almost exclusively used religiously, and it was first used to describe this scene that Jeannie just read. Us and of all the passages that I could have taught in this section of scripture that we were reading through uh this week, uh this is by far the most difficult for, for me to teach. And I had a lot of choices. If you were if you're reading your textbook this uh this week, you know that one of the sections uh Jesus talked to, he talked about how he was going to be executed, and he told his disciples that you too must take up your cross and deny yourself if you're going to follow him, follow me. You know that he was uh, begged uh, by a father to heal his son of seizures. And you know that Jesus' disciples got in an argument about who was the greatest, and Jesus brought a child before them and said, you know, if you're going to follow me, you have to be like a little child. You also know that some of Jesus' disciples went to a Samaritan village where they were kind of like an advanced team for Jesus, and they they weren't received well. And so the disciples came back and were really asking Jesus, you know, maybe you should bring thunder and lightning. You should really punish this city because they're rejecting you. And Jesus rebukes them for even the idea that they should retaliate upon this city. And you would also know that Jesus had conversations with three people. They're given it right in succession, that they're, they want to follow Jesus, but they come with these questions, and Jesus has a dialogue with them, and each one uh, uh, walks away. And then you know that Jesus once again sends out another, more advanced teams. Previously, it sent out 12. But as he's moving toward Jerusalem, the population's getting denser, or they, they have more people trained. And so this time he sends out 72, two by two, to go ahead of him and prepare that city for his message. So with all of those choices, you might wonder, like, well, how do you choose, Britt? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because, um, for one, I, you know, I pray, and then God tells me. I'd like to tell you that. But, uh, and I do that. And I try to wrestle with God about what is the best passage. but oftentimes I'm like, what is the unique part of this passage we can't get elsewhere? Uh, how what passage is most critical to the narrative both before and connecting and what's what's to come? And then a third uh, consideration is how does this context roll forward into our life today? How do I bridge that thought or event or teaching to what's happening today here with this, These people here called or online called Sunridge. But I want to tell you in advance that this is not a passage that you can just easily make an application of. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and we're like, hey, you know, I should do this. I need to make this change. I should take this action. But Luke doesn't include this section as like something to do. Um, So don't look for a thing to do from this message. Instead, look for a thing to think, because that's what's happening here. In the passage that Jeannie just read, Jesus gets away to a mountaintop. It's unnamed, but there are several choices in northern Palestine that we can speculate on to pray with three of the twelve, Peter, James, and John. And they seem to be a part of an inner circle of Jesus. They're not his favorites, but it appears that he, I mean, if you just read the Gospels, he seems to often take them away. So they're kind of part of this inner circle, and you can see a little bit of light into what Jesus has a public ministry, but he also has a private ministry, and then he has even a more private ministry within that. And we see that he has this prayer meeting, this little prayer meeting on the top of a mountain, and. In doing so, there's some things that are just typical in a prayer meeting, and there's some things that are really unusual, even in the Bible, that happen in a prayer meeting. And the first part, the typical part, is that in an extended prayer time, people get sleepy, right? I mean, we won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you have like, actually fallen asleep in a long prayer meeting. I've actually heard snoring. In a prayer meeting, anybody ever, and I know it's not you, but has anyone ever heard snoring? And it wasn't yours, yeah. Yeah, things you get to witness when you go to Bible college and be a pastor, you know, people falling asleep and snoring. But the second part of this are like the unusual things that happen in a prayer meeting. In uh, verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, Jesus, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, typically, we, we like, traditionally, we close our eyes during prayer, ostensibly to concentrate more, right? But man, isn't this a prayer meeting you'd want to keep your eyes open in? And during that time, Moses and Elijah make an appearance. Two men, verse 30, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. This is the only place in the Gospels where that that we have an earthly appearance of Old Testament ancestors. And how did how do they even know who this is? I have no idea. I don't know if they had a shirt on. Said, I'm Moses, I'm Elijah. But it's just a detail that Luke leaves out, which to me is like one of those one more little kind of subtle way that you can see that the 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 authors of the Gospels are not colluding together, because this is something that you would kind of clear up. You would see this after a while, right? And these three are talking about Jesus's departure, Luke says, which is his death. It's it's another word for exodus, a going away. And of course, Jesus has been forewarning his disciples of his impending execution as they move toward Jerusalem, where it's going to happen. And Luke, remember we've said some things that Luke says, about a third of them are unique to his gospel. This part of that conversation is unique to Luke. And uh, at first, the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, are a little drowsy, maybe a little embarrassed in their prayer meeting, but once they're fully alert, they see Jesus' glory and Moses and Elijah. And this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus appears in this glorified state. Even after his resurrection, Jesus um, doesn't bear the brilliance that he has here. And so, I mean, if we just kind of like insert ourselves in the story, maybe Peter, James, and John are awakened by these voices that are talking. But they only hear the last part of the conversation as they're walking away. In verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds, he did not know what he was saying. So Peter must feel the need to say something here, right? But what he says is super dumb. And um, the theology falls apart. Right away, and I, I'm not being mean, and I'm you know it's not, I'm just relating because you know there's sometimes that there's those times when you like say something because you feel the need to say something and it's the wrong thing. We won't talk about what those are among us, and that's I mean the word of Proverbs where it says you know even fools are thought wise if they keep silent is been a, that's a life verse for me. But by what Peter says, he shows that he has no idea what he's talking about. He says, let's put up three shelters. So what's that about? Um, Putting up three shelters, maybe your Bible says booths or lean-tos, tents. It's like little mini tabernacles. And this idea of building shelters is an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of three... pilgrimage festivals as like there's three times in the year where devout Jews were required to as tradition to travel to Jerusalem and to do a tradition and this feast of tabernacles was one in which they would build these little lean-tos and it it had a couple of like ties to history one is like it's harvest time because this happens in the fall and they oftentimes would be coming from harvesting and, you know, like some of their fields were far away and they would just build these little tabernacles and they would just stay on site. But the main thing that this is referring to is like the years that Israel, the 40 years that the Israelites spent in, in the wilderness. And they were traveling and they would build their little shelter and then they would take it down and move each day. And so it's just reminiscing and celebrating how God provided for them and in Peter's religious tradition the glory of god dwells in those tabernacles in those structures so they're accustomed to the belief that god's glory is contained in a place and uh if you know if you've studied the temple before you know that like god is there you you go to find god there and there's even the, the holy of holies where god's presence is there so powerfully that if the priest would go in there In an unworthy state, he would die. That's why they they tied a rope on him and had a bell on him. Because if the bell stopped ringing, they would know he died and they could drag him out without going in there. That was their tradition. For the Christian, though, where does God dwell? He dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, right? So that Jesus says, um, where two or three are gathered, I'm in your presence. I'm with you. So God is not contained in this way. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, when Peter suggests the building of shelters, Mark is, a, is kinder about the way he comments on it. In Mark 9, 6, he says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. But Luke is pretty blunt. He says he did not know what he was saying. You catch that. So like, he's really saying... He doesn't know what he's talking about. So evidently, Luke must have spent some time with Peter on some of the missionary trips with Paul. And he's familiar with this way of spouting out things that don't really make sense. And even God the Father has to interrupt Peter. I want you to see, like, while he was speaking, verse 34, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. So the way Luke says it, it's almost like God has to interrupt Peter to get a word in edgewise. And this is one of only two places in the the Bible that heaven speaks about Jesus. Uh, One is at Jesus' baptism, I'm going to put it up there, we've read through this in Luke 3, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And then here, in the transfiguration, with God's voice ringing through the canyons, verse 36, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So when that happens, they're just speechless. Actually, Matthew and Mark remember it this way, that Jesus tells them not to say anything. And Luke just says it this way, they kept it to themselves. And this is one of those nuanced differences in the the vantage point that the New, New Testament authors saw things or recalled them. It's kind of a weird passage, like I said at the beginning, but we can be thankful for it because the information that Luke gives us here is critical to every Christian today. It, because it because it really centers on the centrality of Jesus. and as as like I mean, Our worship team in Jed, they just picked like the greatest songs to go with our message. Um, The transfiguration reveals the uniqueness of Jesus. See, if all the world's major religions acknowledge that Jesus lived, and and they say something about him, like Judaism, for instance, teaches that Jesus was Mary's son, that he was a teacher, he had disciples, he was respected. He claimed to be the Messiah and was crucified on the cross. They also acknowledged that his followers reported that he was raised from the dead. And Islam teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. virgin. He was to be revered and respected. He was a prophet, a wise teacher who worked miracles. He ascended into heaven and will come again. And Baha'i teaches that Jesus came from God, that he was a wise teacher who had divine and human nature. He worked miracles and was crucified and resurrected as an atonement for humanity. And Hindus believe that Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and is a God. And in Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. But none of them believe that he is the unique son of God who alone can reconcile human beings to God and to restore us to one another. And these are, these are there are two events in your Bible that reveal how Jesus is unique, that he is the unique son of God. Two events. One is this, right, the transfiguration. We're going to talk about that. What's the other? The resurrection, right? So to Christians today, when we say that, Jesus is the unique son of God, we say, of course, because for almost 2,000 years, we've been teaching that doctrine. And uh, we've gotten used to the idea, and it's just part of our fundamental basic Christian doctrine and belief. But if you put yourself in these guys' shoes, this is radical to Peter, James, and John. It's totally revolutionary. And what happens in this scene is it creates so much tension for them because they have their most revered national and religious figures here. In all their lives, they've heard stories about Moses and Elijah They're not just national heroes to them. They're religious icons to them. And their faith is rooted and founded in the stories uh, of their lives and the things that they said. And so in this scene, two of the, the most venerated men in their religion are standing right here before them. And yet everything about this scene is telling them that Jesus this rabbi that they know that they're following, is supreme above all else and all other person. Jesus is unique in several ways. He's unique in comparison to all religious icons. That's what this scene is telling us. Why do do Moses and Elijah appear in this scene? Moses has been dead for 1,500 years. Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind 900 years prior to this, and yet here they are in some type of physical form in their bodies, recognizable by them. There's a lot of questions about that that are unanswered, but they recognize them as Moses and Elijah. But this scene is telling them that Jesus is not just like Moses or Elijah. As revered as they are to Peter, James, and John, they are mere witnesses to Jesus' glory. So that he's more than a popular rabbi that they're following. He's unique. In fact, when Peter suggests the building of shelters, of course, he starts it off by saying, isn't it good I'm here? And, uh, but he, the way he's talking about it, he's suggesting that they build shelters in a way that gives them equal rank. And by putting these three shelters in a row, he's putting Jesus in the same place as Moses and Elijah. But what's coming out of this scene is Jesus is not just like them. He's unique. In fact, what does Luke say? He doesn't know what he's talking about. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't intend to share his glory with anyone or anything. Now, Peter just didn't know that at this time. In fact, Peter doesn't understand how transfiguring the transfiguration was at this moment. And he'll need to learn that over time by the things that he experiences, by what Jesus teaches. And in this moment, how Jesus's physical appearance has changed, and that makes everything different. He is the Son of God. And how that comes forward to us today is, you know, we live in a very pluralistic culture. That means that we have lots of different beliefs and values that are accepted in our day and time, as long as they fit within kind of like our wider values. Um, And a lot of that is good. I mean, it certainly benefits Christians in, in many ways. But not all of pluralism is good. Like Peter, Christians, include myself here, we want to build our shelters in a row. We want to build shelters that will accommodate our gods and our beliefs. And somehow we want to put them all on equal ground with the teachings of Jesus. And we want it like some ways. I mean, if we could just see it, we would see our idols are built right next to our place for Jesus in our life. And in our culture today, we, we, we try to not differentiate between religions. We say, well, like all religion is the same, and it's not. not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Or we want to place other things beside Jesus, like our political party or our view on this or that or like our lifestyle or what I want to do with my life or my, my patriotism or my Americanism, or if you're a student right now, and you're in school, and you, like, you're not just learning reading, writing, arithmetic. You're learning values. And often, not often, sometimes those values will collide with what you, what you see as the teachings of Jesus. And it's hard for us, but like, somehow we want to make those all fit together. And what I'm saying is they can't always all fit together. Jesus is supreme, and any reduction... And who Jesus is distorts who he is. So what we need to hear today is that Jesus isn't interested in sharing his sharing space with all of our other priorities. He doesn't want to shelter right next to the other things that we think are important or our beliefs, our preferences. Jesus transcends all. Transfiguration Reveals the u- uniqueness of Jesus also in his glory revealed. In verse 29, the appearance of his face changed. That is the word heteros. It means that this is where we get transfigured or transfiguration from. And his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Then what they see in Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, affects what they think. In verse 32. They saw his glory. That word, whether you're looking in the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, is a term that is is speaking about God's work of judgment, of salvation, and blessing. And so the cloud that envelops them uh, is reminiscent of God's presence uh, as the Israelites travel in the wilderness. And Jesus' glory, his face shining, recalls to them how Moses' face shined, his face shone the glory of God. And that word is more than just like shine or, or, you know, like a brightness. It's a heavy word. And it's weighty in a way that it's revealing something about Jesus. So this is a powerful moment for Peter, James, and John. They've already seen Jesus do miracles, right? But that's not the same as seeing his glory. And they see Jesus as all light in this scene, but they also see him in a new light because of witnessing this. What changed? Jesus' appearance changed, but also how they see Jesus changed. They saw his glory. Maybe some of you have kind of had that experience, and you know, like I'm not like an experienced kind of guy, but I've had some, and I, re- the first high school camp I went to, I had a moment with God that I can't explain, that is not predictable, that I couldn't replicate, but like there was something that happened at that church camp In spite of the guy's sermon mainly being about I should cut my long hair um, and other things, the one thing I got out of that was God is God. We have uh, a dear lady in our life group, and when she talks about her moment, it's like it's powerful to hear she talks about this moment where like she'd been a Christian and she'd done, all, she'd done all the Christian things, but there was this time in her life where like, boom, something happened and she saw God's love for her in a way that she had never, ever experienced. Sometimes that happens for people. Sometimes it's a build, I know. But seeing God's glory changes how we think. There's one last thing from this passage that reveals the uniqueness of Jesus, and that is in the words of the Father. He's unique in the words that God, that they hear heaven say about him. The voice from the cloud came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The voice says, this is my son. He doesn't say, this is my servant. That's what God called Moses. He doesn't say, this is my prophet. That's what God called Elijah. He said, this is my son, whom I have chosen. Now, if you read Matthew and Mark's gospel, they say, whom I love. But chosen here demonstrates the same idea. This is the one I have picked for myself out of my love. And then he says, listen to him. What does that mean? It's sort of like a political endorsement, right? Sorry to remind you of all the political ads that may be coming next year, but like, you know, it gets to the end, it's like, my name is so-and-so, and I endorse this, whatever they say. You know? This is God throwing his weight behind anything that Jesus says of what he teaches which is going to put them in conflict, already has. Their understanding of the Old Testament Scripture, as Jesus reveals to them that the Old Testament Scripture has been speaking of him, this is a whole new way of looking at Scripture for them. And so his words, the voice says, from the Father, is that what Jesus says is timeless, and it's authoritative. When that happens, Luke says, they're just blown away. Sometimes things happen in life, you see something, somebody says something, and it leaves you speechless. You can't even talk about it. And the disciples here, or Peter, James, and John, they're so startled and so impacted by the scene, by what they hear, that they're just silent. Now, Peter, unusually, is so stunned he can't speak, eventually, right? But eventually he does. In his second letter, he talks about this. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring to this scene. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So eventually Peter, in his second letter, he just reflects on this moment. This was a life-changing moment for him. It was so impactful. The weight of seeing the glory of God. So all of this kind of spins up to tell us something about following Jesus today. And we know that to, to follow Jesus requires like a different way of living, right? A different way of looking at the world falls being many times distinct from the culture that we live in. But what's the basis of that? What does it mean to live differently? You know, does it just mean well? Just be different. Does it mean be contrary? Whatever whatever the culture's doing, just do the opposite. Or is it just like well, be separate? Like, just be your own little group and don't don't be contaminated by the people that don't think like you think. I don't think it means any of that. Theologians oftentimes. They, they use this phrase, to have a high view of God. Have you ever heard that before, that phrase, like having a high view of God? Let me see. So like three of us, okay, great. So you're going to learn something. Theologians say that phrase. What does that mean, to have a high view of God? Well, one way to look at it is to compare it with a low view of God. A low view of God is to put all your shelters in a row at the same level. And for Christians today, we... I I know I'm not speaking for all of us, but I'm speaking for most of us. We love the human Jesus, right? We love the humanity of Jesus. Sometimes it it takes us to a place where we're making him more normal, um, more acceptable, but certainly more accessible, right, to the sinner, to those of us who are far from God. But there's also another side to Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus. And that's where the values of the kingdom of God come from. And that's it's that high view of God that changes us. Not a forced discipline not that some discipline's bad, it is it's a day-to-day practice, but like not just like following a list or something. How do we change? How does a Christian become a more devoted follower of Christ? A high view of God assures the transformation Jesus invites us into. That's why this thought is so important. Because when I have a high view of God, Jesus is the grounding force and the guiding light in my life. And rather than veiling it like Moses did, we're to look directly at it, to do our best to comprehend it. That's why the Apostle Paul said in his second la- letter, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory when we look fully at the glory of God In his son, Jesus Christ, what does it say? We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So at the beginning of this message, I said, don't look for a thing to do. And I said, instead, look for a thing to think. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And while they come up, I'm going to put a quote from an old dead guy up on the screen. A.W. Tozer. Anybody? Who's familiar with that name? Give me a shout out. Okay. Contrary to some belief, I did not live in the same day as A.W. Tozer. But I love this quote. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her, her idea of God. What does that mean? The way we view God is what... That's the thing that tells us who we are. If if our God is holy and just and righteous, then he defines the world and our behavior and our beliefs. And our high view of God compels us. even, Even as imperfect as we are, it compels us to become like Jesus and to do the things that he did. When we have this high view of God, we become a person of our word. When we have a high view of God, we realize that all life is precious. And we seek justice in the places where there is injustice. And we use our power and our resources to right injustices in the world when we have a high view of god we won't tolerate or invite sin into our lives when we have a high view of god we'll love the people that are difficult for us to love When we have a high view of god the gift of sex will be used in the context that god intended it one of love and lifelong commitment marriage when we have a high view of god In our marriage, when we're going through rough times and trying to work out our differences, we'll do that rather than being impressed by the person that's giving us the attention that we crave. When we have a high view of God, it means that the teachings of Jesus alone will be our guide. and No matter how that puts us in conflict, with culture, with any pundit, or belief, or our own preferences. Our high view of God causes us to follow the way of Jesus. A high view of God makes the gathering of his, of his family a priority. And a high view of God means that my finances belong to him. And a high view of God means that my desire is to reflect the nature of God in my community, in my family, in the places that I interact with other people. But most of all, a high view of God helps me to realize that I am sustained by him, that there is nothing too big for him. And through all of the challenges and and all of the things, the trials that come at me, I can stand firmly in my faith because my God is bigger than that because I have seen his glory and I am blown away by his love for humanity and I can see his power and his majesty above all else that is happening around me. Will you stand and worship with me? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening.